stuff. Honestly, one of the things I hope we're going to get into here, because I they had the Mets broadcast on the Mets, um, the first game that was like the suspended game they were finishing game yesterday on MLB Network. And I swear to God, they spent two plus innings talking about this whole Javi Lindor thing. And I was just like, you have nothing better to talk about than this. Are you serious? Two innings? We're going to go on two innings. I I honestly muted it at that point and then missed the comeback until I saw it later on Twitter. But that was apropos. Yeah, I don't blame you for for muting it. I mean, honestly, I wanted to mute it after the first New York Post cover hit the stands. Uh, and we'll, yeah, well, let's dive into that in a second after I do the show open. This is Three Strikes Throughout, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 87. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports Baseball Prospectus and stand-up comedian officially activated. The other voice you are hearing is friend of the pod, contributor to Bleed Cubby Blue and Fangraphs, Sarah Sanchez is back for a very pro-hobby podcast. Sarah, good to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always happy to give hobby some love. Yeah, once I saw, like, even before, honestly, this, this the New York tabs got a hold of this, when I saw that Javi explained what the thumbs down gesture was all about, like, I had the feeling like, yeah, regardless of what I thought I was going to talk about this week, this is what we need to talk about. He, can we talk about that interview for a second? Because he, he's literally sitting there with little Javi, like, on <laughs> his lap. It is the most innocuous non-threatening thing in the history of baseball and it is so New York for their fans to get all riled up about how Javier Baez the the guy who thrives off fan energy and loves the fans more than maybe anyone not named Wilson Contreras (laughs) the idea that Javier Baez sitting there with his adorable four-year-old is such a threat to the Mets fan base. Y'all are soft. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, the saddest part about watching that to me that struck me the most was seeing his four-year-old in the little Mets replica jersey. It was just like another Jed Hoyer dagger to the heart seeing that. So even before he started talking about it, that's that's what, what hit me the most. And I, I think that, honestly, where we're at as a Cub fan base right now, that I, I realized kind of right before we started recording that essentially what this is about is that other than Wilson Contreras and Kyle Hendricks, all of our favorite Cubs are playing for the Mets, the Yankees, the Giants, and the Red Sox. So if any of you fan bases don't show what we think is the proper appreciation for these incredible guys, yeah, we are going to jump to their defense, and that's what this podcast is all about. And honestly, it, as as you, you were about to say, so when the two main villains of your story are Javier Baez and Francisco Lindor, the player literally nicknamed Mr. Smile, I'm going to suggest maybe the problem isn't them necessarily. Like, going into the season, other than maybe Fernando Tatis Jr., I would be hard-pressed to find two more fun, likable, watchable, exciting players than that. And the fact that within one month of having them both on the same team, this is what you're focusing on? I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it at all. I mean, I get it. Mets fans are bad. Like I, not all <laughs> Mets fans. Like I, I will, I will not all Mets fans this because the women at Amazing Avenue are great. If you ever have a chance to listen to a pod of their own, you should. Uh, it's outstanding and big shout out and love to Linda and to Allison over there who I've gotten a chance to talk to on multiple occasions and who are wonderful. Um, but frankly, like, 
watching Mets fans explode over, oh my gosh, Javi doesn't appreciate the fa-. They're booing us. They are, because all you, you boo your players constantly. You're you're it's not interesting. I mean, I I honestly went back and reread a piece that I wrote about Addison Russell, of all people, in 2019, because my my starting premise for that piece, and this is the game when Addison Russell came back after his suspension and after he was in AAA for a while. My starting premise for that piece was I went to that game. I could have booed Addison Russell. I would have gotten nothing out of that. I don't boo Cubs players. I didn't boo Tyler Chatwood when he was walking the land. I did not boo Araldis Chapman, even though I didn't want him to be a Cub. And I didn't boo Addison Russell, even though it was probably the hardest months of my life (laughs) writing about what was going on with Addison Russell and the Chicago Cubs and, you know, every freaking news conference. And will they tender him a contract? Oh, they will. Look, Theo thinks he's going to solve domestic violence through baseball. That's weird and probably not possible, but okay, I'll write it up. Um, And if there was ever a time that I was going to boo someone on my favorite team, it would probably have been the day that Addison Russell came back from his suspension. And if, and if I had done that, I would not have been alone. I, I would venture to guess that I would have been in the 70-30 majority of Cubs fans who were at Wrigley Field that day. It's something Theo ended up talking about in the post game. It's something that Russell was asked about and frankly dealt with poorly in the post game. But I didn't. And I didn't do that because I don't boo my team. I learned from my mother when I was a little kid that it's poor sportsmanship to boo anybody, really. I think the only players that I really have ever booed in my life are like Ryan Braun, who totally (laughs) deserves it, and probably a couple of Cardinals players. I'm sure I could come up with one or two off the top of my head if I was so inclined. Um, But for the most part, I don't boo anybody. I don't boo visiting players. I don't boo the Cubs. I don't boo somebody who's struggling. John Lester gives up 10 runs. I don't boo. I, I, I know that nobody feels worse than John Lester out on the mound giving up 10 runs. And one of the things that I dislike about New York's fan bases, and frankly, Philadelphia and Boston, you can get in on this too. Uh, I don't like the way they treat their players like that. I don't like the fickleness of it. I don't like the booing. It's one of my least favorite things about going to a Red Sox game at Fenway that they will boo their players if the players start playing poorly. I've always thought it was awful. (laughs) Like there's no way that Francisco Lindor doesn't already feel bad enough that he's having the worst season of his career after he signed a 10 year, 300 plus million dollar deal. He feels awful. You don't need to remind him of it every time you're not making things better. And so anyway, I just, I saw that whole thing. I thought that the booing the fans thing or like the thumbs down celebration was frankly pretty funny. I think it's funny in the way that things that people do to turn, um, to make something bad empowering for them is, in funny, is, is a funny thing. And I thought that's what Javi was doing. I liked that him and Francisco Lindor and Kevin Pillar, by the way, Kevin Pillar, who nobody wants to talk about. I liked that they were all doing that. I thought it was ludicrous that Mets fans took that so personally when their whole brand is that they're so tough. New York is so tough. It's like you can't handle a player thumbs downing you because you boot them. You're not tough. You are the softest people on the planet. And I know we will get to this, but I also thought it was utterly ridiculous to have national sports writers like Buster Olney out there pontificating that this somehow tanks Javier Baez's free agent market. It does not. 
the only people who think they're the center of the universe are the people who live in New York. <laughs> like nobody else thinks New York is the center of the universe. It is just you and you all should get a little tougher. As someone who lived there for almost nine years, can confirm. Yep, big time. Yeah, there, there's a lot that I want to get into in response to that. That uh, I, I think, first of all, just as a fun thing, I think Mets fans missed out on a real opportunity to have fun with this, especially given the fact that they won the doubleheader yesterday and kind of played their most exciting baseball in at least a few weeks. Like, yeah, if the fan base then picks up on, okay, they're booing us, what if we also turn that gesture into booing ourselves and make that our rallying cry? Like, that's how you unite a fan base and, and the players who had been kind of at each other's throats. And that's what, honestly, Javi insisted was the whole idea behind the gesture in the first place is we're, you're acting like we're on different teams here. And so we're going to, you know, fire back because we, we, we hear you and it hurts us. So... Uh, you know, I, I think it could have been one of the most fun things in baseball if the Mets fans, instead of taking offense at how dare you break the sacred fan player covenant, have been like, yeah, sure, boo us, boo us. But they, they I, lack the fun or self-reflection to do that. Every winning team has a thing that they do that is unexpected that like brings the fans and the team together. Rally cats, baby shark. Ian Happ's waffle maker, whatever it is, there's always a thing that happens at some point during the season. Tommy LaStella interviewing guys after they hit a home run with a fake microphone. There's always a thing that good teams do that is like their thing, right? If the Mets had any self and the Mets fans had any self-awareness at all, they would have turned booing success into their thing. And they probably would go on like a 13 game winning streak who knows if they would chase down the Braves or not, but it would be real interesting to see. And they might ride that all the way into the playoffs, but instead they get all stuck in their heads and they're upset that Javier Baez made them feel bad. And I just, I can't, and like he's been there 37 seconds. <laughs> he's already done at least four things that have changed games in ways that are positive for the Mets. He's literally played like 15 games. And I see on Twitter, I'm like, wow, that slide. Wow. That defense. Wow. That hit. Wow. That, he came home on a play. He wasn't supposed to come home. A literal winning run. Literal winning run. Enjoy it. Enjoy yeah. it. It's the most fun thing to watch in baseball, and you have him on your team for at least a limited amount of time. Don't start fights with that dude. Come on. What's the matter with you? Yeah. Javi is a ride, and sometimes, you know, the ride is a gigantic drop off a cliff, which has happened in the past couple of weeks. But then all of a sudden that drop off that suddenly turns into the most brilliant experience you're going to have in baseball. Like the, the best way I can describe Javi, especially this year, the Javi Baez game from 2021, everyone is going to remember is the game where he went 0 for 5 against the Pirates, but somehow managed to get in a rundown between home plate and first base to the point where Wilson Contreras managed to score from second base on a grounder to the third baseman and somehow Javi found himself on second base on the same play. It's, it's the most joyful, insane thing when it clicks in. You just kind of have to deal with some of the, the valleys to get to those incredible peaks. And I understand in only a two-month sample, it's hard to do with, deal with that, especially when they're now falling behind in the division race. But nonetheless, two months is also enough time for him to click it in and be brilliant. You just got to kind of wait it out. And I, I think kind of... To, to tie into what else you were talking about in terms of how the Mets and how Yankees, Red Sox, and Phillies fans take pride in booing the home team. 
one of the things that really kind of gets under my skin about that is the equation of booing your own players with some like elevated level of baseball fandom smarts. Like, oh, we're, we're not like, you know, LA fans or San Diego fans. We demand great play at all times or else we let them know that's because we're tuned into the game. Bullshit. You think players in a, in a market like Denver don't realize when they've screwed up on the field and feel bad about it? You, you think they need the, the, the hatred from the stands to let them know that, oh, I screwed up? I mean, I'm t- and I, I think that that's kind of why they can't make it a thing about make, making thumbs down a fun player and fan base gesture is because it's so self-serious that, oh, no, no, it, it, it would degrade the, the, our, our, our fan base to, to buy into that. No, how dare you offend our fan base? We're the smart ones. It, it's, it just irritates the hell out of me. I mean, you lived in New York for a while, and I, I admit that I have never been to a game at City Field. I've not seen the Mets play at home. I've watched a lot of Boston at home, though, so I, I have a, an idea of what this is like. I, I'm sure it is anathema to any New Yorker listening to this show that I would dare to compare New York fandom and Boston <laughs> fandom. And, and yet, here I did it. I did it, and I don't feel bad about it at all. I have always felt like that takes away from your ability to enjoy the game that the whole, like you have to be so into it that you can't even like have empathy or sympathy for the players you like and root for. That's not fun. I don't ever want to boo Wilson Contreras. When Wilson Contreras strikes out in a big moment or like makes an error, I feel pain for him because I know how hard he tries and that's why I like him as a player. What possible reason, what possible joy do fans get out of booing their own players? I, I honest to God don't know. It's, it's like, yeah, it's like they've sublimated anger that they're somehow taking out on the team that they've chosen to devote their hearts to. And, and believe me, it's, and, you know, Mets fans, I do get that it's been rough over the past couple decades. There have been a lot of years where they have crushed your heart and I, I, I get that, that that makes you frustrated with them. But I, where I draw the line is, as, as we talked about at the beginning, turning it into hatred and visceral hatred of your own players. Like, that's, these are the guys that you're supposed to be kind of committing emotionally to. And to me, that, that it definitely takes away a bit of, as you say, the human connection that, that really, to me, makes rooting for sports and especially when your team turns good to be as fun as it can get. Like I'm, I'm glad that I had that human connection with so much of the 2015 and 2016 and even 2017, 2018 Cubs. Like, you know, we're talking an entire podcast here about how much we still care about Javier Baez, despite the fact that he's been brutally ripped from our hearts for over a month. Like that's the level that, that he impacted us. And to me, I, I find that as a much more satisfying way to go about rooting for a baseball team than the second that the player starts to suck. Oh, boo, boo. I don't accept this at all. And uh, to that point, uh, one of the things that got brought up, I forget which media pundit brought it up, but uh, they talked about Derek Jeter. uh, And I know that's mentioning his name to you is anathema, but nonetheless, I want to use this as an example because I think you'll, you'll get where I'm going with this that there was one year where he started off really poorly with the Yankees and to the point where after like six weeks, he still didn't get it going and fans were booing him at Yankee stadium. 
And the pundit, I forget who, mentioned that Derek Jeter's only response was, yeah, I support what they're doing and I agree with it. And what fun is that after six weeks, after everything you've established with that fan base, it can be destroyed in a month and a half and you're okay with that? That's fun baseball? That's that's good? Like, to me, that that's the exact opposite point is made by that. Like, if Derek Jeter somehow accepts that booing him after a bad month and a half is okay, then you wrecked baseball for Derek Jeter. I mean, I might have been okay with booing Derek Jeter. No, I'm Not just kidding. Really. I, I don't think I ever booed Derek Jeter uh, even. Um, you know... This sort of brings me to something I've been thinking about that ha- does not have to do with Javi, but has to do with another ex-Cub, which is every time I see Anthony Rizzo in these post-game interviews for the Yankees, he looks awful. Mm-hmm. He looks sad and miserable, and he looks like he's just trying to, oh, you know, we're trying to win baseball games. We're doing, it's like what? like the towing the company line thing. I have been watching Anthony Rizzo play baseball since the Cubs brought him up. I He's a fun player he smiles a lot he jokes around he has a personality it's a blast I don't see that Anthony Rizzo when he's in these post-game interviews with the Yankees and I I don't know why that is I mean I don't know if it has something to do with the way the New York media room is set up I don't know if it has to do with the way the Yankees tell their players to behave I don't know if Rizzo blink twice if you want us to come rescue you like we Ken and I will form a mission right like but honestly it just doesn't look fun to play in New York. It does not look fun. I I mean, I know that there are guys who loved playing in New York. I mean, hat tip to A-Rod, who's another guy that I, I might have booed A-Rod once or twice. Um, that probably had more to do with steroid stuff than it had to do with the fact that he was a Yankee. But honestly, like, I just, none of this looks fun or interesting to me. And I, and I don't think that that makes other fan bases soft. I think that that means that the Eastern corridor should reevaluate the way that it approaches sports and what is meaningful or interesting about sports to them. And, you know, I, it's funny when I lived in Boston for six years, one of the things you learn when you live in Boston is that if you're not from there, you're never going to be from there. Like you, you live in Boston, you're not from Boston. Right. And frankly, like, I'm cool with that. I I don't really want to be from Boston, (laughs) but one of the things that uh, some friends of mine from the West coast told me, after I'd been out there for a few years, they were like, you know, you've kind of gotten a lot sassier and you've gotten, you got a little bit of an edge that you didn't have before. And and that actually made me reflect on acting differently. Like I didn't want that East coast edge. I I don't think it's funny or interesting. I don't think that there's anything particularly great about being a person who's just so competent that you've mastered the East coast. And now you can look down your noses at everybody else. There's, I like being a girl from Utah. I like being a girl from Chicago, which is a thing I feel like I can kind of say because I live here and I've lived here for five years now, right? Like I do not like the attitude that the East Coast like looks down on the rest of the country with. And I don't like them looking down at Javi Baez like that. And I hope that Javi gets out of there. It does not seem like he is long for the New York Mets way of life. And I would be remiss if I did not say Jed Hoyer. If Javi's free agent value has actually tanked, which I don't think it has, I think Buster only is very wrong about that. But if it has, and he is looking to sign a one or two year deal to reestablish that free agent value, I believe there's a really good team on the north side of Chicago that could use a shortstop 
yeah. uh, until at least 2023 or 2024 when they become competitive again. And Ednel Javier Baez already has a street named after him in Humboldt Park. So <laughs> let's just get that done. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I've looked at the minor leagues and uh, yeah, the shortstop cupboard kind of bare, especially at the higher parts of it. So yeah, turns out there might be a match between someone that everybody in the fan base loves and is awesome and is a world champion. But you know what I'm, I'm not in charge of the rebuild, which is not a rebuild. I don't know what a rebuild is, but you know, uh, to, to your point about uh, New York taking the fun out of baseball. And this is something that I very much picked up when I was out there uh, is that, especially in regards to Yankee fans and to an extent Mets fans too, I think, but Yankee fans especially are not fans of baseball. They are fans of winning. And if you are not winning, they want to know why the fuck they're there. And I used to have a line in my act that if Yankee fans had been around in Tiananmen Square, they'd be rooting for the tanks. It's, it's, it, it, it's just kind of the, the philosophy, the guiding philosophy. And I think my, again, very uneducated, removed opinion of Mets fans is that Mets fans want to be that, but their team has sucked for 15 or 20 years, so they're mad about it. I'm, I'm going to be pissing off so many people at this episode. Oh, boy. Uh, all at, at me at Twitter. That's fine. Uh, but again, that's for, as you say, for a player like Anthony Rizzo, who is used to a demanding but also fun atmosphere and one where you can expect fan support, even in some of the times that are tough. Yeah, it's an adjustment. And I'm, I'm sure the, the self-seriousness of the Yankee organization has something to do with that, too. Uh, so, you know, the Cubs have room for a first baseman this offseason. I might suggest that, you know, as another offseason move, maybe, but, you know. No, it, it's interesting what you say about Mets fans want to be the team that wants to be winning all the time, but they've been losing for so long that they can't. I think that that would resonate with most self-reflective Mets fans. It, and I do want to give a shout out to my friends who are Mets fans here, because there were good Mets fans on Twitter if you knew where to find them as this whole thing was going down. And, and I think a lot of them are people I follow because they write for Amazing Avenue. If you don't follow some of those writers, you absolutely should. They are great. Um, a lot of them are people who I have followed over the years because I follow the people who write for Amazing Avenue. So there were absolutely people out there saying, whoa, this is ridiculous. Why can't anybody spell Javier Baez's name correctly? It has a, it has a diacritical mark. Over the A, it's not hard to get the diacritical mark on there, folks. Like, it's real easy. If you're on your phone, you hold the A down, and then it gives you some options, and you pick the right one. If you're on a computer, I recognize that that's a little bit trickier because there's, like, ASCII codes and stuff. I don't know all of those. What I do is I Google Javier Baez, and the first thing you get is his Wikipedia page, which has the diacritical mark on it, and then you should copy that, and you paste it, and the diacritical mark comes with it. It is the easiest thing in the world. And the fact that like, and look, I'm not talking about like, I don't know if my mom ever got on Twitter, which dear God, let's not get my mom on Twitter because that would be bad. But if my mom ever got on Twitter and she didn't know how to put a diacritical mark on Javier Baez's name, that would be cool. Like whatever. She also spells his name Javi, uh, J-A-V-I, because she thinks that's <laughs> how you should shorten Javi. And I don't correct her about that because she's my mom and it's her favorite player. And what am I going to do? Right. But if you are a writer for ESPN, or MLB.com, or The Athletic, or Fangraphs, or anywhere else, and, and you're not doing that, like, why, why are you not taking that step like you know better? Like, don't do that. It's his name. It's his actual name. Like, spell it correctly. That's a thing that you should do. Um, and I, I just, 
I think there are good Mets fans out there. I think there are people who are out there doing the whole thing and trying to like point out that you should spell his name correctly and booing your own players is not the best look. And there is a lot of blame to go around and what's gone wrong with the Mets this season. So let's not pretend that 15 games of Javier Baez is the problem, but they were few and far between. And there were a lot of people who just wanted to talk about strikeouts or talk about, how terrible it is that some covenant between the fans and the Mets has been broken as if that was not already broken when you've been booing your players for however long you've been booing your players. Yeah. And uh, yeah, to that point in terms of getting back to the covenant between the players and the fans, the thing that struck me about the thumbs down gesture when it was explained what it was about booing the fans is that it struck you as funny and it struck me as tame in terms of players fi- firing back at a fan base. And I immediately, as you would expect, flashback to, uh, oddly enough, there's a Ted Williams story that's, uh, that is gonna be, uh, that I'm gonna tell at this point. Cause um, Ted, of course, with uh, the fans of Boston, uh, not the best of marriages for most of his career, but uh, if you wanna talk about a moment where a player for one game almost declared like metaphorical open warfare on a fan base. It would have been early August, 1956. Uh, It was a game against the Yankees that went extra innings. And in, I think like the top of the 11th, Mickey Mantle hits a fly ball to left field that uh, I think it had started raining and Ted, Ted lost the ball in either the clouds or a raindrop hit him the wrong way, but it was a ball that he clumped, let it fall for a double in the 11th inning. And of course, uh, Yankee double and extra innings against the Red Sox. The entire ballpark, Fenway, just let him have it. And so Ted, the kind of player that, you know, when he gets booed, you know, he, he gives it back. So he starts steaming right away. And then next batter, Yogi Berra, laces one in the left field. And this one, Ted makes a sprinting catch on. And it's a re- legit good play in left field. So immediately, like when Javi scored the winning run, the fan base goes from everybody booing to on their feet cheering. And this, more than anything else, is what sets Ted off. Because he realized in that moment, as he explained later, what he hated more than getting booed by fans, and believe me, he hated that, was the realization that, oh, you're a bunch of fucking front runners. That, yeah, 30 seconds ago, everybody booing me because I dropped the ball. And now I make a good catch and you're on your feet? That's that's who you are. No, no, no consistency, nothing at all. And so... Ted, because he used Ted Williams on his way to the dugout, looked at left field, spat. Look at right, looked at right field, spat. And so that all of a sudden, everybody in Fenway was ten times worse on him. Like I, I, I think there was somebody that climbed on the dugout and was yelling at the Red Sox dugout. Ted spat at him from the dugout. Someone threw a golf ball at him. Like it was a nightmare, and. Uh, so later that inning, uh, bottom of the 11th, the Red Sox load the bases and who comes up Teddy fucking ball game. And so he's grinding the bat, just, just throw it in there. I'm going to destroy it. And the Yankee pitcher, I think it was Tommy Byrne, uh, scared to death through four balls, walked him with the bases loaded Ted, because he didn't get a pitch to hit to show everybody what he was going to do, flings the bat 30 feet in the air and like has to be talked into going to first base to score the to score the winning run so it is just a zoo at Fenway like 
Ted, I think at one point after getting booed, went in the tunnel, ripped a water fountain off the wall. So like there's water spilling all over the dugout. It's chaos. And so they write like all the Boston writers go to the papers the next day. Oh, okay. This is at last, like this is Teddy's last stand. He's going to get run out of town on a rail. First time up at bat, next game, standing ovation, the entire ballpark. After reading that, yep, it's your day to run Ted Williams out of town. That's when Red Sox fans said, nope, we are drawing the line. You are our guy. And Ted writes in his autobiography, this is the moment where I realized, okay, the fans are actually on my side now. Uh, and there was a big moment, like in the seventh inning, he had a game-winning home run. And like the entire ballpark, like, went silent wondering what the hell he was going to do because, you know, he doesn't tip the cap. And as he crosses his plate, you know, crosses home plate, he looks at left field, looks at right field, takes his hand, clamps it over his mouth, and the entire ballpark erupts. And he rose to the moment. And, and so that's the thing to me about, about this is that, you know, the entire ballpark is booing about a thumbs down gesture when Ted Williams gave the fans a hundred thousand times worse, like spitting at the fans. Like you shouldn't spit at the fans. Like, of course not. And yet somehow the fans realized this is somebody special here and we better show them we appreciate them. And, you know, that's something, you know, Javi Baez is obviously not Ted Williams caliber, but still a damn special player. Well, this is actually one of the crucial dif- differences in my mind between Boston fans and New York fans. Um, but that is, you know, I, that's I, admittedly, I'm a, I'm a little bit biased there. That's partially because of the way that I think that um, Red Sox fans appreciate their players over the long term, like over this long arc of stories, right? Uh, there are players who never become Red Sox who get booed and kind of run out on run out of town on a rail. Um, looking at you, Carl Crawford. Uh, but and then there are others who you know, have the back and forth and the back and forth ends up working in the player's favor. Favor, And at that point, they're just beloved and there's nothing you could do to any of those players. Everybody in the city of Boston would. I mean, I the way that Boston fans reacted to David Ortiz getting shot in the Dominican Republic was instructive. Hmm. I think that if you could have t- told, if you told Boston fans there was a way that they could get to the Dominican Republic and exact revenge, on whoever had done that to David Ortiz, 90% of the city would have signed up. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and no question, just like, yes, let's go. Like the city of, like people like myself who have no idea what we're supposed to, like, what are we supposed to do? I don't know. Like I, I have no skills that would help in this at all. We would be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that to bring this back to the gesture and moment at hand, what bothers me the most about all of this is how infantilizing it is to Francisco Lindor and Javier Baez who have to stand there and like deal with this team statement that there's going to be a meeting to explain to them how, like the sacred trust they hold with fans. Come on. Mm-hmm. Has anybody ever needed the Mets to tell them how to interact with fans less than Francisco Lindor or Javier Baez? Yeah. No, they have not. Like, if you are a Cleveland fan or you are a Cubs fan, you know both of those players are magic. Their relationship with the fans is just fine. The problem is not Lindor or Baez. The problem is the Mets. Like, the problem is the fan base for the Mets and the way the team is run and a whole bunch of other things that are going on. I mean, 
It took them one day to have a much bigger controversy, Mm -hmm. admittedly with a much shorter statement. Their GM (laughs) has been, is being investigated for driving under the influence from a party that he left that was at the team owner's house. Like I, (laughs) the number of questions I have about this is legion, that the fact that the fact remains that there was a post on medium of like 150 word statement indicting Francisco Lindor and Javier Baez and the Mets released like a 40 word tweet for the the thing with their GM. And this is the second GM they've had had this season because the first GM got ran out (laughs) for sexual harassment claims. So like, can we just pause and reflect on the fact that perhaps the problem is not Javier Francisco Lindor? No. And also, I think this gets at kind of what we were going to mention earlier in terms of the New York media specifically, but I think also sports media in general, is that one of the things that sports writers recoil at is that real serious news writers used to refer to them as the toy department. uh, And they didn't mean it uh, in a jokey manner either. They looked down their nose at it. But one of the things that a story like this reveals is that sports writers and the sports media are really not good at prioritizing real world villainy. Like for example, GM Zach Scott getting a DUI on the way home from Steve Cohen's house, or for example, homophobes like Daniel Murphy being acquired just in time for out at Wrigley day, or for example, Trevor goddamn Bauer. The sports media doesn't really look into, doesn't want to look too deeply into what's going on with stories like that. But, if you give them a trivial moment where the fan base can take offense, they can turn it into a multi-day catastrophe that will be on the back pages every single day. And that's one of the most infuriating things about the way sports media covers baseball and sports in general, really. Yeah, I agree with that. I was actually thinking about this for a different piece that I'm working on at the moment uh, for fan graphs. So it's kind of looking at some of the alternate broadcasts that have come out this season, the kids cast or the like, we'll have all women, an all woman sports cast for an MLB game or these types of things. And one of the things that I find myself (laughs) thinking about there, it's so simple, right? It's so simple for MLB to be like, hey, perhaps the way that we grow this fan base is to stop having the same 55 to 65 year old, mostly white guys talk about the sport to people over and over and over again. Uh, Perhaps we can get some new people interested in this sport if we meet them where they are and let, you know, some 19 and 20 year old kids, including a little league world series legend, Monet Davis talk about this game and explain what's going on at the little league classic, or, or perhaps uh, we could actually <laughs> appeal to some of our non male f- fans by having a broadcast that centers the perspective of some really smart women in the industry who a lot of people don't get to hear because their fan, their their broadcast team doesn't have those female voices on them at all, right? Um, it is instructive to me that, let me back this up. It is instructive to me who gets a pass and who does not, who gets scrutiny and who does not. And, you know, I wrote my piece about the hobby thing for Bleed Cubby Blue um gosh maybe a couple of days ago now I guess it came out the day after the whole event so I think that was the 30th I don't know time is like rushing on here it's been a real wild news cycle so it might have been the 30th might have been the 29th I don't remember the exact day um but one of the things that was interesting to me there because because I did point out the fact that you know everybody wants to talk about this as a 
Javi and Francisco Lindor story and Kevin Pillar kind of gets a pass. <laughs> um, and Kevin Pillar doesn't have to worry about people spelling his name incorrectly over and over and over as they talk about this story. And I, I got some pushback from people who were, you know, the, the typical like, oh, you're playing the race card. You didn't need to inject race into it, et cetera. And I, and I would just pause and challenge people to say the following. It's not playing the race card to point out obvious ways that implicit bias rears its ugly head when stories are covered. And if you think that there is not a difference between the way the DUI story is being handled and a simple thumbs down gesture by players is being handled, you, you need to be have a little bit more scrutiny about the media and who covers things and how they tell those stories. And that is not to say that if you missed that, you are a terrible racist who is irredeemable. That's that's not the point of pointing that out. It is to say that there are certain stories that some people are more readily attuned to see than others because they've dealt with them their entire lives. And I think that we would all do well to be a little bit more mindful of that and to try to see and, and to listen when people tell us that something has a racial dimension or it has a gender dimension or it has some form of discriminatory dimension that maybe we didn't see on first pass. Just just pause and reflect and listen to what somebody else is telling you and don't argue with it and don't say it's wrong. Just hear that other people saw it differently than you and think about what that might mean. Yeah, and, and I would add in terms of to emphasize the power of the implicit bias that you mentioned, of those three players, Baez, Lindor, and Pilar, Pilar is far and away the most actual problematic person of the three. And a lot of people don't know or don't realize that because Kevin Pilar is problematic in the sense that he has yelled homophobic slurs at Jason Mott on the field. Uh, he has, to his credit, recognized that that was wrong and made gestures to the gay community of Toronto to try to make amends. But then a couple years later, he essentially all lives mattered Jackie Bradley Jr. in the wake of the, the Wildcat strikes last year. Uh, in 2020. So Kevin Pillar has multiple times, we have multiple moments of him being uh, at, 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 the, at the very best an untoward kind of person uh, on the field and off. And yet somehow he's the one who gets the biggest pass in, in this story. And I think it's, it, you don't have to have me explain what's going on here. You don't have to explain what's going on here. It's pretty obvious what's going on here. And in terms of uh, how the gatekeepers in the media oftentimes will actively ignore or sometimes even clamp down the voices who are just asking to be heard, what that reminded me of uh, was a moment back in 2018, right after the Cubs had acquired Daniel Murphy, uh, as an example that, that is relevant to Outsports listeners, that I remember Gordon Wittenmeyer lecturing people on Twitter that they were not supposed to tell him to do how to do his job when all we were asking was, to find out some statement from either him or the team, what it meant for him to be acquired a couple days in advance of out at Wrigley and for him to be leading off during out at Wrigley. But that apparently is too much effort to put into what is actually important in the real world and the most important part of your job as a sports writer. I always think about, you know, there are a couple of versions of this piece. Cheryl Ring wrote one of Fangraphs a few years ago, um, and Kelly Wallace wrote one for The Athletic, I think after the Daniel Murphy thing, actually. Um, it's 
instructive <laughs> to think about the moments where your team shows that they don't care about you. Like where they, they just, they, they know that what they're doing is hurtful to a subset of fans and they just don't do anything about it. Um, for me, that was very much the Araldis Chapman and Addison Russell moments. Those were not just like bad, not just like, I don't want to cheer for these people. They brought up memories of things that have happened in my life that are the most painful things in my past. And I don't want those things associated with my favorite thing in the world. I don't want those things associated with Cubs baseball. It makes it very complicated for me to have this relationship with this entity that I have frankly cared about and loved longer than pretty much everything in my life, except like close family members. That's how long I have been a Cubs fan. And it's hard and painful when front offices make decisions that show that that very real pain is not relevant to their decision calculus as to who should play first base down the stretch run or who gives them a slightly better option at second base in a playoff race or who should close for a team hoping to win the World Series uh, for the first time in 108 years. Um, I'm not going to lie. Like people ask me this all the time. They're like, well, do you want to give the World Series championship back? Obviously, I do not. Thank you. And I am well aware as to what Araldis Chapman's role in that championship was. I also would give just about anything for the Cubs to have won that World Series without that complication mm-hmm. with Andrew Miller <laughs> instead yeah. of Araldis Chapman. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we don't get counterfactual do overs like that in life. And things are more complicated than that. But I'm not the only person that feels that way. It's a, it's a, you know, there are some people who just left the fan base at that point and you don't know who they are because they're not super loud about it. They're just done. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where some people have to deal with these moments where their team acquires Daniel Murphy, who has said very hateful things about them as people and they have to reconcile that or they have to leave. That's, the choice that they are given by this sport because of who they are. And that's not fair. And it's not easy. And it's frankly disrespectful for writers to blow past that and to act like everybody should just get over it because of course this is just a business and a game when the business and game decisions don't affect them. You know, the la- I'm sorry, I'm talking too much this episode, but the last thing this reminds me of is Last year for the Hall of Fame voting with all of the Kurt Schilling and Omar Vizquel stuff, when Ken Rosenthal wrote this piece for The Athletic, where he was talking about how terribly hard it was for him to turn in his Hall of Fame ballot with all of these controversies and how he just wasn't sure he ever wanted to vote for the Hall of Fame again. And I just, I I was just appalled. I was like, how dare like the first time you've ever felt confl- this is the first time you've ever felt conflicted about baseball voting for the hall of fame apparently and you just want to walk away mm-hmm. do you have any idea how many millions of people watch you on espn sunday night baseball or fox baseball or in the postseason or read your stuff in the athletic that have that feeling multiple times a year because of decisions their team makes at critical junctures Millions and millions of fans deal with this conflicted feeling with how they approach sports every single day. And it is insulting for 
the people who are the most prominent dudes, and it's almost all dudes, covering this sport to just blow past that. Yeah. And I think what Ken Rosenthal couldn't take in that moment was that it was one of the first times maybe in his career, I don't know, but as a, as a baseball writer, as one of the most powerful baseball writers in the, in the industry, where he had to feel a little bit of the pain that our communities experience when a homophobe and a transphobe like Kurt Schilling might get elevated to the highest honor in, in baseball. And yeah, that's very uncomfortable, Ken. And now imagine that moment of discomfort that you get from having to consider that on your ballot. Imagine that lasting, I don't know, 15, 20 years that we've known Kurt Schilling's been this way and the media has been okay with it. So yeah, I mean, I, I, honestly, I'm glad you feel this comfort. You should. And instead of avoiding it and pushing it away and saying, I'm done with my responsibilities here, as you said before, Sarah, maybe it's time to listen. Like that, that's really all that our communities want in moments like this is that, yeah, our, our sport and our team sometimes put us through pain. And when that happens, we just want to know that somebody is there who is listening and validating that experience and, and that experience of our fandoms. And not taking moments out on players who are just trying to do their jobs the best they can. Like, yeah. let's just all admit that there's, I, there's like worlds of difference mm-hmm. between Kurt Schilling and like Francisco Lindor doing a thumbs down mm-hmm. to Mets fans. Like let's, let's keep our eye on the ball people to, to use an overused baseball metaphor. Let's, let's keep our eye on the actual problems. Let's not mm-hmm. pretend that that problem is Francisco Lindor or Javier Baez. Come on. You know who causes joy? Javi Baez, Mr. Smile, guys like that. Let's let's celebrate that. Uh, Sarah, do you have anything to plug while I still have you here? No, but if people want to hear takes like the ones that I had here or on other episodes of this podcast, I think this is my third or fourth time hanging out with Ken here, which is always fun. Uh, You can follow me at at BCB underscore Sarah. There is no H on the Sarah. My writing is at Bleed Cubby Blue and Fangraphs. And my podcasting is at Cup of Cubby Blue, which has been on a bit of a hiatus, but we'll be back shortly. Some of consistently the best takes in the baseball industry and some of the most thoughtful thoughts you can get. Sarah Sanchez, thumbs up on this podcast. Thanks, Ken. Right back at you.